This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. Well, not right now, but Matt was with me when we recorded these interviews just for a bit of midweek content so something a, a bit different this week we're going to catch up with peter wright from digital law uk who's been on several times to talk to us about legal issues in and around f1 and motorsport today we're talking about driver contracts what happens when things go wrong when people need to part ways how does that legally work and we've got some great recent examples uh, to point to as well but we're going to start the show by catching up with my my friend magnus greaves who i'm hoping will be a regular panellist on the show. He's in Canada. He owns and runs an FIA-accredited magazine, which we're going to talk about a little bit as well. And we're going to talk about some of the, the great locations in Formula One as well. Heritage sites, uh, new wave circuits, and party cities as well. Party venues. Where do you go for a party? Anyway, it's a nice chat. I, I know you're going to like him. So uh, here's Magnus Greaves. I started off by welcoming him to The Shed. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Magnus. I've been delighted with the magazines you've you've sent us, and I've been looking forward to this chat for a while. I've been looking forward to it too. Thank you for having me. Uh, Race Weekend magazine. Let's talk about the magazine a little bit, because ultimately I would like to tempt some of our listeners to go check it out. It's not like, uh, you know, you go to your local news agents and you pick up the magazine and it's got some press release bits in it. The, the magazines you're putting out are like, uh, they're, they're conversation pieces. You put them on your coffee table, and I feel posh because I've got it on, like, our table. If the wife invites people around, they go, oh, what's this? You know, and it's a, an interesting conversation piece with big photos, and it's, and it's huge as well. It's like a one size. It is, it is massive. Yeah, you know, I, I always just felt that Formula One was such a, such a good-looking sport, such an exciting sport, but a lot of the media around it tends to focus on the technology and, and the news and, and the results. 
uh, and I thought there was something missing. So we decided to create Race Weekend. So our whole goal is to explore the circuits, the cities, the culture of Formula One. So big entry points to look at the sport. And it's a big sport. So we thought it deserved a, a big magazine. So it's uh, it's a very large format, lots of huge pictures, but also we try and go just as deep in terms of, uh, you know, on the editorial side when we when we take on these big topics. Yeah. OK, well, look, you know, you're not going to the nuts and bolts of, well, the, the nuts and bolts. What kind of other mm-hmm. topics uh, do you explore? I know you do a lot of like location stuff, for example. Yeah. So when we when we had a previous publication, we focused each issue on one individual location. But we actually thought we could do a bit more than that. So the first issue that we've done with Race Weekend is called the Jet Set issue, Jet Set Formula One. So we'd look at all of the different amazing uh, host destinations, all the different cities that host Formula One races and explore what that experience is like for somebody who's going to go. And and actually, why is that uh, a Grand Prix uh, host city? You know, what, what does it contribute to Formula One and, and, and being a fan if you get to go? Well, they contribute a, presumably a big cash payment to Liberty for, for one yes. thing. But when when you're a fan thinking about where you want to go, the location is actually quite important. I, I wonder how many people pick say, because they want to uh, go out uh, in the vineyards of Italy as much as they want to see the home straight at Monza when they choose to do that trip. Yeah, and I think this is the thing, is if you ask most people, especially people that are new to the sport, which race, if you could go to one race, what would it be? Most people are going to say Monaco, because that seems to be the most glamorous. But actually, as much as I love Monaco and, and the unique things that it has to offer, I think for most fans, that actual experience in Monaco isn't going to live up to what they hope it to be unless they have a few mates with super yachts, which I don't think most people do. All right. Well, he's triggered me straight away. All right, Magnus, let's talk about <laughs> Monaco because I constantly have it shoved down my neck that uh, you, oh, you just have to be there, my darling. You have not experienced Monaco until you've smoked a cigar from the Duchess's shoe. Is it? Is it really? Will it change my mind when you eventually send me as your Monaco reporter to go and report for your magazine? Will it change my mind? Will it blow me away? Yes. In short, it will, but provided you're going on on somebody else's dime. I I think the actual (laughs) physically being there and seeing, seeing those tight streets, I think you gain a much greater appreciation, right? In terms of the size and the speed of the cars and, and the skill that it takes to go around Monaco, the backdrop of the Harbor, the yachts, all the cool things that are going on. It's amazing. Um, you know, but but I think logistically, you're most likely not going to be staying in Monaco. You're not going to necessarily be partying in Monaco. You're going to feel a little bit um, outside of the the interaction. Uh, and I think you kind of get more more bang for the buck elsewhere. But it's definitely a, a bucket list item. But but this is the thing I find most interesting too is that Formula One is kind of a bizarre sport in that 95 percent of the fans will only go to one race or perhaps no race in their lifetime. Yep. Right. So that one race, you want to make sure you choose it correctly. And I think, you know, if you look at the the, the wonderful Netflix show, it does a great job of making everything look glamorous and exciting. But the truth of it is a lot of the races that you go to, there's not necessarily that much glamour to be found, or if it is, it's sort of, it's hidden and not easily accessible. So that's why in the jet set issue, we we broke it down, right? You need to think about what type of experience you want. So we look at it as there's heritage circuits, 
There's what we call the classic revivals. There's the new wave of Grand Prix destinations. And then there are actually a handful of, of party cities. So depending on what you're looking for, uh, you know, there, there's ones to go to, ones yeah. to prioritize and ones that maybe won't interest you. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, let, let, let's um, let's start with Heritage then, when you were talking about maybe the tracks like Nürburgring GP, uh, Silverstone, for example. So we were at Silverstone, me and Brad, on the Friday um, and uh, I've been there. I was there in 2013 as well. So when you go for a weekend at, at Silverstone, I've also watched like WEC and stuff there. You mm. need to be prepared to yomp. You know, you need to be there in your walking shoes, yep. not not a shirt, a t-shirt, uh, sunscreen. <laughs> you know, you need to be ready for like a physical day because it's so big. Um, but that's completely like I'm not saying Towchester toaster isn't a party city but you go to silverstone to yomp around a racetrack no but but this is exactly my point when i went to silverstone i well i I went when i lived in london but i also went when i was here in vancouver and i traveled over and you can have an amazing time at the circuit at silverstone but as soon as you leave it's done it's kind of over like northampton (laughs) yeah yeah, that and and people there's no sort of central hub for everybody to stay which is going to create a natural party atmosphere People are sort of spread out all over the place. It takes forever to get there. And then, um, you know, you, you, the, the the Formula One atmosphere. So I still had a great time in the evening, but it wasn't a Formula One infused great time in the evening. You know what I mean? I was doing wonderful English activities as opposed yes. to feeling like I'm in this uh, forever celebration. Some people will argue, of course, the campsites at Silverstone are, are where you go. To, to have that kind of party atmosphere. Well, but much and, like why I don't like going to other people's houses, I also don't like going to campsites. I'll let you imagine the rest. Yeah, that, that could be a bit tricky. But that's what we're saying as well, is that if you're into that and willing to go down that camping path, you know, then Silverstone is a great one for you. Just like Spa. Spa, the best time you can have is if you stay in the campsites. Have you been to Spa? Because that's on my list. No, that's actually... I've been to about a dozen of the, of the Grand Prix, but that's uh, at the top of my list near the top of my list of ones that I haven't been to that I want to go to. But on our team, somebody from our team has been to every single race. So that's how we have the inside look at it. Okay. I just want to get into the mechanics of how your team works uh, since you've mentioned it. Uh, You are uh, FIA accredited, your organization. So that's super fancy to start with. That's like proper big boy stuff. And I'm super jealous. But what does that enable you to do? Does that mean you get a, a guy in the in the paddock uh have you got a, can you put a microphone in someone's face what 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 does your accreditation allow yeah so that allows me or one of my my the members of my team to go to the race be in the paddock and be in the media center you know which then gives you opportunities to interview people and get up close to the action so listen it's 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 fantastic it's amazing that said when i go to a grand prix what what happens outside of the circuit is just as important to me to sort of take it in and, and see what that city is all about. But then also at the Grand Prix, not to be all caught up and excited with myself that I'm in the paddock, but actually go around the grandstand areas, which is where all the fans are and 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 where so much more of the fun takes place. And And that's important to point out, too, is that in this issue, we're not looking at it from the privileged position of being in the paddock and, and doing all that. We're looking at it from every angle. Most people at the race will be in the grandstand. So what's that experience like? What's the fan zone like? What's it like to get to the circuit from the city if you 
not in a chauffeur driven car, but you got to take a bus or a shuttle or walk or, or, or come a different way. Yeah, you've got to have uh, experience as well of like the general admission and, and stuff like that. So Silverstone 2013, I, I was meant to be going with a friend who pulled out last minute. So I was there on my own on the Sunday. And in the general admission, found it very hard to see anything. I found a spot. And I was leaning up against a, like a thing, like an old football stadium, kind of just a metal bar. Yeah, so it's like a metal fence, like metal bar. So I'm leaning on that and I'm, I can't do anything. I can't go and get a drink. I can't go and get a pint because I'm going to lose this spot. Right. So right. I, I, I guarded that spot. I stayed there where the race was about to start. Cars were coming out on track. The people sitting down in front of me went, right, here we go then. Stood up and sat on the thing I'd been leaning against, completely blocking my oh, view. No. And everyone had done that. So apparently, like, everyone knows that. So I'm like, man, Grand Prix's about... So I had to go. I couldn't have done that this year. 2013, I had to go to the ticket office and last minute shell out another 90 quid for a seat at farm. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to see. But it's stuff like that that you need to experience as well for your... It, exactly. And and what's great about what we do is that uh, we don't sell the magazine via newsstands or any of those traditional methods People come directly to us via our website. They buy the magazine, which means everybody that has the magazine, I have their email, they have mine. There's a lot of conversation going on. So when people read about this, you know, they share their experiences at different venues. So we're collecting a lot of information that we can then (laughs) share with other people. It's just, and that's what you rely on. You rely on, on tips as well. Well, if you want to interview me about my 2013 Silverstone experience, you're more than welcome. And I've I can, made a note of it. And I can yeah. compare that to the to 2021, where, where me and Brad were invited into the Paddock Club for the Friday. Very different. <laughs> Very right. different. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and that's the thing I, I find, too, about the, you know, the Paddock and the Paddock Club, which is a fantastic thing to do. But if you go to every single race on the calendar and you just look at it from the perspective of a Paddock Club. Yes, please. That, well, okay, you might like that a little bit, but it does look the same, right? It does look the same. It's the same perspective. Well, me and Matt have both been ruined, haven't we, Matt? Because you got you had that equivalent at the Formula E race, and and now it's it's going to be hard to go back. Don't make <laughs> us go back. Yeah. We will have to anyway. Right? Uh, you described different kinds of locations and cities. I'm interested in this. You said the heritage ones, so I think we've. You kind of talked about the it's, it's the ones on people's bucket list, isn't it? It's the Suzukas, it's the the Nurburgrings, it's the it, spas. It, it, exactly, it's the ones that really sort of speak to the history of Formula One and the ones that have been on the calendar for an extremely long time and contribute something sort of deep and historical. And I think if if that's what people are looking for to feel like you're doing some type of pilgrimage to F1, those are the ones that you go to. Similarly, we have what we look at as the classic revivals. So venues that were on the calendar a long time ago maybe came off for a while but came back and were and were modernized so if i mean the perfect example of that is zandvoort which is number one on my list because even when, when a race looks amazing on tv in terms of the atmosphere mm. you know that in person it's going to be you know unbelievable i see you wincing there but yeah just like wear orange learn learn some dutch i think matt just for, <laughs> just for personal safety Gonna have to go incognito to that one. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, you might have trouble. I'm. I'm I'll go. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it. But okay. But I'm also intrigued as to what constitutes a party city. Is this way we're kind of we're going to you and me? We're going to pick a party venue to go to, and uh, we're going to paint the town red as I as I know you can. Where are we going? Where's our party destination? Well, so so this is interesting too. Is that there's there's 
you can have a party that's just a party or you can have a party that makes you appreciate that you're in, an, in a Formula One atmosphere still. So, and I know you're going to say I'm biased because I'm Canadian, but the easiest place to get that is Montreal. In Montreal, the whole city, I mean, first of all, it helps when the circuit is in the city or attached right to the city, right? So you yeah. don't lose a lot of atmosphere when you when you leave. Montreal, the whole city loves the Grand Prix and it turns into an F1 themed party. The restaurants have F1 themed events, clubs have F events, cafes, you know, the city's decorated. Even when you land at the airport, I remember one time there was a, like a baggage handler wearing a sort of fake F1 outfit. So the whole <laughs> thing is taken over and, and Montreal is just a great city for going out anyway. So in terms of an E, especially for all the new American fans from the Netflix show, like that's an easy one. I'll put a lot of money. I mean, Austin is a great party city as well, but because it's just a great party city any day of the week, any, you know, any day of the year, it's not necessarily a, a, a Formula One themed gotcha. party, but you'll definitely have an amazing time there. I think, I think the one that I'm looking forward to that's going to take it to a whole new level is Miami. I think that has all of the oh, ingredients. When, when is for Miami? A perfect Grand Prix. When's that on the calendar? May. Oh, uh, May. I saw May 8th, but I don't think that that's necessarily uh, official yet. I don't and really... May 9th is my birthday, so I think I'll have to take that one in properly. I don't I don't really know North America. Is Miami is that right next to you? Is that next to Brooklyn? Just to... It it is it is the furthest place from me but it's worth the journey but it's it's uh, a straight shot from brooklyn though you'll be fine oh okay so because yeah. it's hot there isn't it and it's all beachy so yeah but you, you, you know it's it's more than that though it's it's the the mix of cultures that you have is incredible right the everybody in the united states is there you go is is happy to go to miami because they know what what's there you know people will come from south america it's the gateway to south america europeans won't have much uh of an obstacle uh, mentally wanting to go over there as well. So you have a whole mix of people, you know, and Liberty, this is one of the things I find interesting is that Liberty, it talked about making every Grand Prix a Super Bowl, right? Well, that hasn't yet happened. Don't know what that I, means. Yeah. Well, and what that means is, is, is something that only Miami knows because Miami has actually hosted a Super Bowl. And what that means is a hundred thousand people will come for your race, but 500,000 people will come to your city just for the parties. So you need to make sure that the city is is fully embracing it and has themed events and things going on and that that's super accessible. And I think, you know, Miami is um, Miami is an incredible place. And I think from conversations I've had, they're 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 going to approach the experience for the fan in a completely fresh way. So I'm excited about that one. OK, I'm tempted. I'm tempted by that one. But Project Beachbody Spanners is it's a whip. It's a work in progress. Mm, okay. So we'll okay. have to see where we are after Christmas. It's a very damaging okay. time for that for that project. We'll, we'll mo- mo- most party cities tend to be very sunny, so you yeah. keep doing those push-ups. Okay. Oh well. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the push-ups, mate. It's the it's the, <laughs> the arm action from the dinner table. Okay. That's that's okay. the that's the main factor. Um okay, so we've got our party city sorted. I think I'm with you, Miami. So for heritage. You and I, we've got to go to Spa. We're traveling the world together yeah. next year. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Spa has got to be on our list. I think I just, I want to see the the dip, you know, down towards Eau Rouge yeah. and, and up, uh, especially if they're going to remodel that at some point as well. Before it goes, before it disappears, we want to get that. So yeah. we're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to have a 
a lot of European food. It's all sausage based, basically. And then Love we're going to party in Miami. Yes. I hope it's the other way around. So I haven't got my spa sausage weight on, um, on, when yeah, we're we'll on go, the beach. My, my, Miami is going to be in May. So we'll do the European races in the summer. Roger that. Yeah. So where are we going in the new wave of tracks? And what do you mean by new wave? So, so the new the new wave is is super fascinating to me. So you have places like Baku, obviously the new race in in Jeddah, uh, Shanghai. You know, some of these newer venues, which for me is is incredible because it gives you an opportunity to travel to places that you might be interested in just from a sort of social cultural perspective. Mm. Anyway, uh, we actually we we put Singapore in there, but really Singapore is is also a party city. Um, but I I'm really intrigued to see where it, you, you can see so much about Formula One's history, development, and future when you look at the change of the calendar My goodness, from yeah. the 70s to now to where it's pointing at going forward. You know, and I think at the moment, you know, the, a lot of the European races are struggling uh, with the fee and the, and the business model. So we'll see where it goes. Well, we were chatting with this with, um, with Matthew Carter and we've chatted with, with Joe from time to time. And there's definitely, obviously with Liberty, a push to get the low hanging fruit that Matthew Carter described in North America, which they've done. So that means you want North American tracks to complement that. You, you need to have the European heritage tracks for the history and the popularity of it. They're a big draw as well. And then in the Middle East, they have got the cash and the increasing influence in F1 to bring it to, to their location, to their doorstep. But you think maybe where you're going to suffer is like, where have all the Asian tracks gone? You know, like China, India, Korea, all of those tracks. They're the ones that are going to miss out. Well, I, I, listen, I, I know that there were some complicated business issues with India, but that'd Tax. be amazing if it could, could get back there. Ch- China, China is, is one of the two growth areas, you know, like the United States. And next year, there's going to be two races in the United States. At some point, there will be two races in China, I'm sure. You know, that race in Shanghai is super interesting. I yeah. went to that and that was fascinating. You know, it was it was a little tricky logistically because it's actually about an hour outside of where you'll stay in Shanghai. But but to see to see Shanghai finally and to see it in that context and to meet fans at the race was was fascinating. And, you know, for each of the locations, we break it down in three ways. We look at the circuit experience. We look at the city action and the X factor. So you know, what is your experience like at the city? Some places like in Melbourne, it is, it is, it's like nonstop fun action. There's so many different things going on, but then some venues don't quite have the full complement of support races and the food offering might be a bit, you know, like for instance, when I went to Sochi, uh, I was disappointed to see so many, uh, you know, hot dogs and hamburgers for sale. I was looking for some, some real interesting local regional food, you know, but, Again, places like like Melbourne just appreciate that people are traveling and, and it's their opportunity to introduce them to to their country. You know, city action, as I said, some cities are just great no matter what, but some of them uh, are really close to the circuit and there's a lot of, of, of overlap, a lot of spillover, which is terrific. Uh, and then X Factor, we try and look at like, what's the, the one unique thing that this venue holds over somewhere else? And and it's also interesting because if if you don't have a home team and a home stadium and a home venue, you know, and you're going to choose one race to go to, if you live in in New York, you're just as likely to go to a European race as you are to you know Miami, Miami. yeah, right. So so yeah. so these different 
Grand Prix circuits sort of compete against each other to offer something different. Um, you know, and, and then that's played out with the, the ticket options and the hospitality options as well. Okay, so I'm okay. I'm sorted for next year because I'm going to four Grand Prix of the three that we've discussed on our, our world tour. It's definitely going to happen. And uh, no one tell my wife I'm planning this. And then uh, and then obviously we've got to at some point go to Monaco so you can convert me and then I can ex- snobbishly explain to other people that you just have to be there. Sorry, it's rubbish all weekend on telly, but rest assured all the people you can see in the crowd are having a wonderful time. We'll, we'll take a lot of pictures. And, and breathe. Uh, but I'm sorted for that. But if you're not going to four Grand Prix next year, I really can recommend your 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 magazine your publication i know we focused a lot on the the locations but also uh you know you've, you've the recent episode is a, a 70s edition and you've done lots of other different stuff like that it is a premium product uh and you uh, and you price it accordingly but it is yeah. when when they're in our house it feels like it's part of the furniture if i'm honest with you and i you magnus is not paying me to say this it's a genuine compliment it feels like a feature in my house well, look, I appreciate that. A couple of things. It's 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 for the whole family, right? So it's if you're a hardcore fan, you like it. Um, but if somebody in your family is new to the sport from Netflix, they can get a lot out of it as well. You can you can take it on board in terms of the get yourself lost in the photographs from the great archives mm-hmm. of photos that we can dip into, or we also try and tell a, a, a pretty meaty story. We we don't have ads in there. Like I said, we go directly to fans. So it's a hundred dollars. You get four issues, and we've just made uh, shipping free in the United States, Canada, and England. So come on, I, it's I, actually good value when you break it down. It's 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 super sized. <laughs> it's worth it. Come on, I'll, I'll have a tweet. Uh, in fact, I'll tweet the picture I sent you of my my son who, when it arrives at the door, just just ran off with it just for a comparison on size. But I do owe you because um, a Red Bull. A uh, staffer gave my my boy an annual, one of those Red Bull annuals at the end of the year, and, mm. and he jealously guards it in his room, and it, it turned him into a Max Verstappen fan, which I'm, I'm sure you can imagine how that's, that's gone down in my house. But at least your publication, it keeps him away from that darn Red Bull book. So uh, I'm grateful Good. at least uh, for that. We will put a link to your publication in our well, and, show notes as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and the, the, other, the second issue we have out right now is F1 in the 1970s. So... That was the decade that created modern Formula One in terms of sponsorship, businesses, super, uh, you know, just the modern business that we know today. We have Formula One in the USA coming out next month to coincide with Austin. Uh, and we're doing a lot of stuff in Austin, which is going to be great. And then the fourth issue this year is going to be Formula One champions. So we're going to look at some of the legends in terms of uh, drivers and teams that have been championship winners over the decades. Okay. Uh, there is a price to pay for your appearance here and talking about your magazine. I, I do expect you to jump on our news panels as well and be a panelist going forward for Miss Apex from time to time. I, I, I can. I'm not so good at talking about tires, but I'll do my best. No, it's okay. We'll, we'll pick one when Matt's on holiday. It'll be okay. okay. Magnus Greaves, Race Weekend <laughs> Magazine. Thank you so much for your time and we'll see you again soon. Thanks, guys. Hopefully hear more from Magnus very soon. Okay, now it's time to turn our attention to the legal ins and outs of Formula One driver contracts. This is Pete Wright in the law world. It's kind of a, he's kind of a big deal. He's a big boy. And uh, he's, he's graced us uh, with his time several times now on Missed Apex. We're, we're always grateful to have him. Um, but do you know what? 
here I am. What am I going to do? I'm going to give away too much. Here, here we go. You just just listen to the the the, the chat. It's, it's good. Peter Wright. I started off by welcoming him uh, to the shed. Peter, thank you so much for spending some of your very expensive time with us. No, it's uh, great to uh, great to see you. Great to be back. And um, can, can I just ask on behalf of the listeners as well, because I'm, I'm a listener, right? I listen to the race reviews and everything. Uh, and I know from having voicemails from you how ill you've been. Are you okay? Are you all right? I'm so uh, uh, grateful that you asked. And yes, I, I sent you a series of, of voice notes when I had to cancel the show last week. Like, uh, Peter, I think maybe I can do the show. And you're like, no. <laughs> We're not doing the show. Go to bed. Uh, and a couple of the shows, Matt has been on absolute standby. And you may have noticed that during the previous race review uh, before Monza, or, or was it the previous show before Monza, Matt, that you had to take over for about five minutes? The listeners wouldn't have seen, but I had my face in the aircon unit desperately trying to cool down. Yes, you, you entered one of your boil-in-a-bag phases yeah. right during the middle of the show. And we were but- like, yep. You go ahead and do what you need to do. We'll take care of it. Well, thank you for asking. I am in the first day, though, of feeling properly alert and bright. I've, I've gone to see a, a friend. Uh, I'm, I'm working and hopefully everything is back on track. Please avoid shaking hands with people and hugging your nan for a little bit because I still think we might be in just a little bit of trouble in the UK. But on to legal contracts. Really interesting conversation we had about a month ago. And actually what kicked it off is we were talking about Daniel Ricciardo and his his career at McLaren actually not going very well. So the whole linchpin of our discussion was, can you get rid of a driver mid-season? And then, and then of course, he goes and wins the, the very next race. But, uh, but that is still an interesting talking point, which is how locked in to these contracts drivers really are and what happens when things aren't working out. The joy of Formula One events that can make discussions age very, very quickly if you aren't careful. Um, but I think it, it did raise, like you say, a really interesting question. Um, and funny enough, I was thinking about it and when I think you had Joe on either the last time or the time before, and he mentioned at one point, oh, so-and-so has got an ironclad contract. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting phrase. Is there such a thing as an ironclad well, contract in sport? There's a there's a legal answer that I think everyone needs to know, and sometimes you can end up, you know, paying huge amounts of money to the most skilled and highly qualified lawyers in the world, and they'll come back to you with a, an answer which is, well, it depends. And indeed, it does indeed depend on an, so many different factors in terms of is a contract really going to be um, something you can rely on, and a huge amount of it, in particular in motorsport, in particular in Formula One, always is going to come down to the goodwill of the parties. Um, and I mean, it was always clear that McLaren was certainly going to be putting a lot of time and investment into Ricciardo. You do not bring a, a driver in on a, on a significant salary, a significant investment like that, and not give him the time. So even if we were discussing this before Mons, it would always have been, well, they're going to give him a lot of time. And surely at some point, he's going to come good, would have probably have been our discussion. And sure enough, a matter of hours later, he has. So there you go. Uh, but obviously, it's, it's, it's different with, you know, even in presenting and stuff. If it, let's, let's put aside the, the miracle win of Monza, which was well-earned. You know, when it's a performance-related kind of contract, if I suddenly came online and 
put my radio show into disrepute. There's probably clauses for that. But what if I'm just not very good? <gasps> Perish the thought. And, and that's just it. I mean, that, that, that comes down to a principle of, of generally um, employment law full stop is that you always will have elements of, well, is someone actually doing the job? Um, and if they're not, you end up coming into areas of performance management. It's different in Formula One in that, of course, we're looking here not open-ended relationships, but contracts that are always time limited. And increasingly, they've also got those sort of performance clauses in there. Very often, there's quite a lot anyway in terms of performance, but it's more on, for example, the driver being specifically rewarded in the event that certain um, criteria are met. You know, if a point is scored, then the driver will probably receive a um, either a bonus or performance-related pay related to that point. Uh, similar thing then, podium, win, etc. cetera. Um, it was very clear even back in the Braun days, I remember that um, uh, I think it was clear that when Jensen Button started going on that run of races, that it wasn't just um, him getting a bonus. I think it was the team as well. So, of course, everyone's got to spring in their step, turning up to work on Monday and knowing that you've just won. Because everyone's like, oh, great, you know, we've uh, we've all done well. We've all seen some other rewards. So sometimes you get those sort of collaborative um, elements in, in driver contracts as well. Um, usually, though, in, in terms then of that sort of defined performance, there's less about, well, if they fail to achieve something, their seat might be in danger, though I'd love to see exactly what it says in a Red Bull driver contract, because clearly they start to panic after just quite a few, only a short number of races where suddenly they're starting to think, "Mm, I I might have trouble here. And that almost seems to add to the pressure. And just from a psychological perspective, I think I thought it was fascinating to see that Valtteri Bottas, after a number of races where we've thought, he really seems to be struggling. The minute that his future has been resolved, it's <laughs> in his best race that I think I've seen him in, in a Mercedes. It was back to how consistent and, and quick he was as, as, as a Williams driver. I found that uh, revelatory. And I did hear um, Damon Hill on a podcast saying that um, he found that when he was in a real tight spot in 95, his performances definitely dipped due to the sheer performance and the pressure that was being put on. So, um, okay, I, I don't want to, yeah. I, I get the general point, actually, mm. because I mean, it's the same in a, a media contract as well. I, I behave differently and feel very differently as I'm coming to the end of a year contract or seeing if I'm going to get renewed. And then when you know you've got a year in your back pocket, you can be a little bit more experimental and kind of act w- with with less fear, if you like, of losing out. The only slight issue I'll take, and we'll see if Matt backs me up on this, <laughs> is that uh, Bottas, I think, had a fresh power unit at a very power-dependent track, which people seem to slightly undervalue. I find it a bit of a coincidence that, yeah, he's really struggled in... Um, actually in qualifying where he's been generally competitive against Hamilton he's not been so on it and then he's not struggled with the tires like he has or apparently not but then he didn't have Hamilton to compare to he wasn't running at the top of the field I just think that the the super Bottas at Monza is slightly over egged I know I'm a hater I think his sorry I was good to say I thought his performance when it came through to um I mean, I think it was Monza a year ago when he ended up being stuck in midfield and just couldn't move forward, whereas to see him do it this time was great. But I absolutely admit that in terms of engine and, and Matt's chosen subject, special, special subject of tyres, obviously that's going to change things a bit. But for once the stars aligned, 
Um, when was the last time we saw Valtteri put in a race with a number of overtakes like that? And I, I, I don't think that's entirely just down to the car being in that sweet spot and the performance. Um, he was absolutely on it. Mm, I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure the psychological aspect of that is, is very high, Matt. I just, I just wanted to, to throw my little caveat in the ring. No, I understand your caveat. And the response I have to that is that, yeah, I do believe the power unit made a difference. But we also saw him in a position where he could not really be effectively used as a tool in Lewis Hamilton's championship pursuits. And we haven't seen him in too many races in that position. I think it's a good and healthy reminder of exactly what he brought to the table and why Mercedes has kept him as long as they have. Yeah. Uh, Look, uh, the psychology of Bottas aside, uh, let's go back to to the ironclad contract. So. Let's let's do the alternate universe where Ricardo doesn't win at Monza. In fact, he he gets caught outside a nightclub, needlessly punching a ferret, and and the performances have gone down. And McLaren just decide we've had enough. We've had enough. And not only are your performances not good, but we love ferrets. What can they do? Is there because Ricardo can't turn around and go, well, I've got a contract for this seat. It's my seat. Bog off. They. Presumably, they could replace him if they wanted to. Well, let's look at some precedent where you've had drivers suddenly radically fall out with teams. Um, Don't forget it was McLaren with uh, Fernando Alonso in 2007, whereby after that year, he was just summoned to to Woking after the end of the season. And they said, right, you have another year's contract, but we're paying you up. Here you go. Thank you very much. Goodbye. So that's where you get that sort of catastrophic loss of, of faith by one party in the contract. I, I didn't actually realise Alonso had a contract for 2009. 2008. For 2008. Oh, mm. my goodness. So he has to give up the championship. I, I'd missed that somehow in my F1 fandom. And then so to see Lewis Hamilton then win the title in his car in 2008 must have been extra crushing. Particularly when they had a... They, of course, they then brought in Heike Kovalainen as, as a, a sort of a teammate they knew would not rock the boat and hopefully just form an adequate understudy to Lewis. Uh, and then he's probably sat there thinking, well, I'm many, many times over uh, a stronger racer. Um, I don't think, despite the wise and wise force of Fernando's career, no one would dispute his ability behind the wheels. It must have been utterly galling to think there is, you know, a car that can win world championships. And unfortunately, I've talked myself out of the seat. Well, there uh, we go. That talked action. It's that whole package of that, you know, tumultuous 2007 season that meant that he didn't get the second year of his contract just think matt if if he'd have been in there with lewis hamilton and instead of kovalainen mass as well a mass as well champion yeah oh absolutely and i love the way you uh stretch the definition of the word adequate with kovalainen as a teammate there but my larger he won one question, race he won one race in a championship winning car but yes yeah uh, i i want to ask if i'm a formula one team and i've not previously negotiated this as part of the driver's contract because i i remember raikkonen too i think got two years of paid leave from ferrari to go crash you know rally cars and and nascar trucks and things like that am i always as the employer in this instance able to tell my driver you know what for whatever reason we don't want you in the seat anymore here's all your money 
go have fun. We're bringing in somebody else. Or is there a point at which a driver can put up a legal fight and say, no, I'm sorry, I get that you've lost faith in me, but I feel I'm still entitled to this seat and I'm going to bring my expensive high-priced lawyers and, and make you pay in court costs, if nothing else, for the right to do this? So that's a very, very good question. And the, I think the closest that Formula One's got to that exact scenario was with um, Guido van der Gaard and Sauber um, a few years ago when um, he turned up at the first race of the season saying, I have a contract for this season. But it turned out that Sauber had already signed two other drivers as well. And one of the issues was jurisdiction, because, of course, when it comes to then, well, actually, I'm going to enforce this, where are you going to do it? So he actually went to court in Australia and the court agreed, yes, you have a contract. And I think he then turned up, I think, P1 or P2 in uh, in Melbourne saying, right, the court agrees and you have to give me a, uh, a seat. But, of course, the team simply didn't want to do it. They had signed their, their two other drivers, so the, the atmosphere wasn't, I think, particularly conducive to um, to running an efficient race team. And, and sure enough, that was just it. They ended up then doing exactly what you've just said and and reached a settlement. So I, I think money probably changed hands, probably quite a bit of money, usually ends up changing hands in these scenarios to end up sort of greasing the wheels of the contract. Um, I did not realise up until only a few days ago when I was listening to an interview with Eddie Jordan, and he was saying that something very similar happened with regards to Michael Schumacher and his second race. So after that first one in Spa, um, basically he did have a semi-agreement with uh, Michael Schumacher for him to stay in the car. Um, There ended up being a significant difference of opinion um, as far as uh, Benetton were concerned and Bernie Eccleston got involved. And basically, um, Eddie stuck it out and got a significant financial payment for the loss of Schumacher to Benetton, which at least ensured that Jordan survived to the end of that season, um, which, if we think about it, is pretty crucial because they became a race-winning team uh, and uh, <laughs> ultimately are still on the grid today. But were it not for that agreement, they may not have been able to become the team that they did. Hang on, for, for newer... For newer fans, for a bit of history, uh, <laughs> Jordan F1 won a race in Interlagos, but it wasn't awarded till afterwards. Was that the one? They also, uh, with Damon Hill, won in Spa in 1998 and with uh, two races with Heinz Harold Frensen in uh, 1999 in what became a improbable challenge for the championship that probably never really on, but it was great to watch. And uh, what, what outfit is that now in modern in modern F1? Uh, so that ended up morphing through Midland and Spiker to uh, to then become Force India, uh, which then became um, what was it Force Stroll or something at one point? Yeah. Well, it's now Aston Martin. It's now Aston Martin and Racing that, Point. Yeah, Racing so double Point. 007 decals all over it, and um, uh, they, didn't they even have the uh, the, the, the uh, Olympic sprinter with them in the uh, in the pit in Monza? That's the level that they're at now. They had an eight-time Olympic champion in their in their pit lane. So, uh, yeah, what's large trees grow from small acorns. So that one court case is what will lead to Stroll eventually being world champion with Aston Martin. Interesting, the fascinating uh, history of Formula One. I just wanted to to cover that off. Uh, but so with Guido van der Gaard, it's a little bit different because he's a customer. And that's where you get into really kind of complicated areas. Like people like Vito, Guido van der Gaard and Latifi are effectively buying their their race seat 
I know Lance Stroll is a is a paid driver, but he is he is paid, he's employed as a driver. So that one's the little caveat. And it's a bit different. But when you're a customer, you can kind of sort of sue. Oh, I paid the thing and I didn't get what I wanted, which is odd for a competitive sport. But there, there you are. Mm. And I, I can also just add in the exception that proves the rule in that we've got the one driver that defies the general rule of pay drivers. And indeed, it's very difficult to define who they are. I mean, technically, you could argue that Lando Norris is a pay driver. So I, I would say Lando Norris in F2, in the junior categories, mm. would be defined as a, a pay driver. But then a team has looked at him and gone, yes, that's the talent we want in our team. Here's money to come and drive with no connection or obligation. To me, that's what... That's what makes it a pay driver at that level. Would you would you have that drive if not for the resources at that level? Pretty much all of them are pay drivers coming up through the ranks. So yeah, I agree. The definition gets blurred, but I love the conversation about what makes a pay driver. Yes, and that's not to take anything away either from from Lando's achievements. I um, I, uh, I went to a touring car race recently and saw um, the uh, Ginetta Juniors, which is like for the those who are still at school to come along and race motor cars. And he won that in something like 2013 or 2014. And so of course the, the race commentator at circuit never tire of telling you about four times during the race. Oh, Lando Norris did win this once um, just to sort of <laughs> prove its, its, its value, uh, but it's still great entertainment. But the, the point is, is that, um, you know, to get through that staircase of talent took a six, took a significant investment by his family. Mm. But, you know, if you've seen rush, you know that Nicky Lauda um, got brought his way into formula one by taking out a huge loan. Um, you look at certain drivers, um, arguably even Senna and Alonso, got into F1 with massive backing from um, individual sponsors in their native countries as well. Um, and it gets to the point, I think it's actually very difficult to define exactly, you know, is the driver solely there on time or is it down to commercial relationships as well? And increasingly, Formula One is a business. Mm-hmm. It's something that teams have to take on board, particularly in the current financial climate. I know this is more we were planning to talk about, but my, my favorite definition of uh, of paid drivers is when it comes to backing, are you getting that backing because of what you can do or are you getting that backing because of who you are? So Stroll gets that backing because of who he is. Latifi gets the backing because of who he is. Perez, that's right on the borderline because they were they were looking for a Mexican driver to sponsor and put money behind but there was also a personal connection between Carlos Slim I think and the family too Lewis Hamilton got his backing from McLaren again because of what he can do not because there was some familiar connection there so that to me that's the thing have you got the backing because you're good and people believe in you or have you got the backing because because of Uncle Jimmy Indeed, I mean, that, that, that is a, an, an important point to I me. Mean, it's interesting after the Italian Grand Prix, uh, apparently um, uh, there's even talk of um, Giovinazzi's seat at, um, what's it called now, Alpha Tauri. There have been calls that the Italian one, government Alpha should Romeo. come in there. It's Alpha Romeo. Yeah. <laughs> Alpha. Um, <laughs> uh, and that's just it. They, they've said, should the Italian government end up um, paying for his seat to keep him in Formula One? Um, arguably, I think the Italian government have probably got other more pressing things to worry about with finances at the moment. But but there's a lot of people who feel very strongly about that, not least the fact that you've got the Italian heritage in Formula One, and without him, you've suddenly not got an Italian driver on the grid. So, you know, you, you, you can... That also sort of stretches that definition to a certain extent, potentially. Yeah, I, I think it's a difficult question to answer because I think, unlike in years past, even if you were wretched from a Formula One point of view, you're still pretty darn good overall 
But I think there is, a, especially for the smaller teams, a point of arbitrage where the money I can bring through my sponsor is worth more to the team than than any extra points they could get because of the inherently, this year being a very big exception, anti-competitive nature of the sport. There's going to be a few teams at the top that take almost all of the points. And if you are not in that small window, then you're almost certainly better off betting on a driver who will bring you 30 or 40 or 50 million than betting on a driver who, if everything works out right, might bring you two or three extra points and possibly one step up in the uh, Constructors' Championship, which is the only place yeah. there is money. And, and so that's how Sauber sort of found themselves in that situation, Peter, I guess. Uh, it, mm. Was it just the three drivers? I keep making the joke that Manisha Coltenberg, uh, Clatton. Cottonborn. Cottonborn, thank you very much, had signed like eight drivers that season. But that was clearly was what they were driving at, was bringing in essentially customer drivers. So what what was the legal basis of being able to let him go in the end? Uh, was it just a, well, tough luck, here's some, here's some cash. If you're Guido van der Gaard and you're a racer, you don't really want the cash. You're pushing to go, well, this was my seat. This was my, my chance to be an F1. Uh, exactly. And I'm afraid in short, the short answer is... <laughs> When it comes down to it, you, you just have the parties not in a position to want to, to follow through on the contract. So then it just becomes, here's some money to go away. And you'd actually be very surprised how many disputes ultimately it comes down to the parties agreeing a sum for something to be um, ultimately um, put to one side. So um, even though, I mean, you know, specific performance in this in- instance is, yeah, he's going to have a, uh, a seat for a year. Um, specific performance simply was not, um, on the cards. And um, it's quite fundamental in Formula One, as I say, that you've got the team wanting to put you in the car, wanting to, to make sure that everything is proper and safe and running properly and supporting and working closely with you. And if the if the practical will isn't there, very difficult to force people to do it. And um, by, by the same token, don't forget, we've had some years where drivers have walked away from full years in Formula One. Nico Rosberg yes. being a significant example. Ah, okay, yeah, that's that's a good direction to take it. Actually, then the the drivers who walk away. If Rosberg had a contract, I guess he had a t- contract for twenty seventeen. Is he in any legal trouble? I mean, you can't force someone to drive a race car, can you? I mean, that's the weirdest punishment <laughs> ever. If you get forced to drive a race car, so ordinarily the, these things are pretty hefty documents that try and cover what's going to happen in any, any particular scenario. And more than likely, there was a break clause in there where you've got a contract for multiple years. And Nico, I, I think, was on a multiple year, multi-year contract at that time. Uh, that would have a clause in there that says if, if one of the parties wishes not to proceed the following year, this is what will happen. So there was probably a... Um, it's a good question, actually, in terms of whether Nico would have received a payoff for not racing, um, or indeed whether he may have received certain things in 2016 that then had to be returned. If there were, for example, signing on bonuses for, great, you've just signed on for your multi-year deal, here's a nice big bonus. Um, And it could be that then because he didn't do the whole year, would that have then been payable back? But then you also wonder sometimes, despite what's in the the sort of the, the, the small print, fine print of a contract, the parties are still free to reach their own settlement. So it could well have been you know, let's just stop it there. Let's walk away. Um, there could have been payments. There could not have been. It would all come down to, as I say, the biggest element is the will of the party, sometimes over and above what is actually in the contract. And of course, Mercedes and Nico, it was 
still amicable, ultimately. You know, did, would Mercedes want to have their reigning world champion in the car? Most definitely. Did they want to go through another year like they just had in 2016? Probably not when you actually listen to the interviews with different engineers who were in that garage that year. So I think they would have had to resolve it uh, in some way, shape or form. But I think Mercedes were on, on balance would probably have rather kept him rather than have him um, walk away. Um, and certainly they were so shocked that I thought they, they certainly never expected him to walk away within hours of winning, winning his first world championship. So if I'm understanding this correctly, really what it's going to come down to is the party that is being jilted because why not put it that way? Uh, it feels that they are experiencing a harm as a result of the other party's behavior. Like if Mercedes felt like Rosberg leaving would actively harm them, then their attitude might be different. And at a certain extent, are we just coming up against the fact that the general tendency in Formula One is we would rather settle this privately than air any kind of laundry? I mean, they are very, very secretive over there. Are we, are we seeing not a lot of cases like this? Because at the end of the day, the teams especially feel like it's in their best interest to settle it where no one can really see what's going on. Well, in particular, where you've got Mercedes, a works team, you know, the, the board at Mercedes aren't going to particularly want to see headlines in either specialist or national press um, about their inner workings and consideration, in particular, when you've got a great big list of blue chip sponsors as well who are paying huge amounts of money for nice, positive headlines. So you very often see wielded the ubiquitous NDA non-disclosure agreement, which is part of the contract, which basically says, this is what the contract says, and no one is going to be uh, actually, um, yeah, this is what the contract says, and yeah. no one's actually going to refer to what these specific clauses are. And I think we've just seen an excellent example of that in the last couple of weeks with Bottas and Russell, who were constantly being asked things in the paddock, and whether they'd signed or not, they were subject to contracts that will have had NDAs in there, so they simply can't answer the questions until they are allowed to under the terms of any agreements. Right. Uh, I, I want to ask one more question um, related to this. We've got, we've got Ocon, who's a Mercedes driver at Renault. We've now got Albon, who is a Red Bull driver going to Williams, which has a Mercedes engine in it. And I, I've recently seen an article that they are still working on the contract because Mercedes is very concerned about protecting its intellectual property rights. How much is this kind of driver swapping going to complicate contracts and sort of the things that we've already been talking about? I think that's a really good question. Um, and I must admit, I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about the issue around Ocon because obviously uh, Mr. Carter has trailed extensively uh, <laughs> that he remains under a agreement of some sort with Mercedes and could end up sort of um, on a bungee cord pinging back to, to the Mercedes garage. Um, but I, the fact that he's now on this multi-year deal with Renault has made me think that in the same way, I mean, we're hearing very publicly that Mercedes had a problem with um, Albon having that uh, Red Bull agreement and going into the Williams garage. And I cannot think that Renault would have committed Ocon to a multi-year deal, multi-year investment in a, in, a, in a talent and a driver without bottoming out the same arrangement. 
So if there is some very, very deep agreement, you know, multi-year management agreements in there with Mercedes that um, still would allow him to go to, to Renault and come back, I almost wonder if, have Renault done their due diligence? I would have thought they would. Um, and there will be things in that contract that would supersede anything else that may have been signed or done earlier on. Um, the Red Bull and Albon issue is 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 different again. I, I thought it was interesting what Joe said on this actually when you had him on the other week. Where he said, "Well, he's almost been well, he has been burned by Red Bull twice." So should he necessarily feel an awful <laughs> lot of loyalty, particularly when you look at how he was um, treated? So. He might have actually been quite grateful for the opportunity to now lose that relationship with Red Bull uh, and be able to now progress his career in, a, in an environment unencumbered by that. Well, okay. But, yeah, I was going to say, most of the reports are that, that Red Bull have got an option for him for 2023 if they want. I don't even know what an option means. It's said all the time. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um and don't forget as well, what I've just said there about non-disclosure agreements and you know commercial confidentiality and a lot of the massive commercial interests wrapped up in these agreements. If that's the case, can you imagine then that you'd freely be saying, oh, yes, we've got an option that says this and an option that said that, which makes me think that what's coming out from Red Bull there is more than likely um, a little bit of smoke and mirrors and a little bit of um, drumming up a a story, a little bit of trying to destabilize Mercedes because there's been, let's face it, an awful lot of that this year. Um, And this is merely just opening up another front, potentially by Red Bull to do that. I should put a caveat on all of the things we're discussing today, that this is, of course, based on um, our discussions and our opinions and that none of us have seen any written contracts here. So we don't know for sure. Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, and as we learn from you, just occasionally saying allegedly covers us for whatever we want. Like when the time I said that Ferrari allegedly cheated by delivering more fuel into their engine than was allowed. Because I said allegedly, I'm completely legally safe. I, it's what you've taught me. In, indeed. And hopefully you won't face any form of horrific enforcement from the FIA for saying that. Oh, man, I love that. <laughs> we could imagine the likes we'd get on Twitter. If uh, Ferrari sued us or the FIA. Shall we, but just before we move on, do you want to just quickly go into actually what an option is? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I forgot I'd even asked. Your answer was so um, long. Because, and this is just it, an option is generally just that. It is not a contract. Um, uh, and I'm afraid a couple of months back, you were on this Apex saying, an option is basically another year's deal. And I was just screaming at the radio, no, no, it isn't. An option is just that. It is an option to take up a driver's services for a year or for a period or to to basically say, we have the option to potentially give them that seat. It's not giving them the seat, it's saying, we are keeping you under option. Um, That can then destabilize the market as a result. Quite often, drivers will sign an option with one team to drive up their value with another when they're in negotiations. So, ah, you'll have to double my salary because I've got this great big option here from Ferrari and they're really interested in me. Can I have some more money, please? Um, and that quite often can be quite an effective um, uh, argument. The, the bluff, of course, is that the team boss then says, well, I've not got the money. If, if you don't like it here, clear off. Here's your cards. Thanks very much. P45's in the post, which is a tax form for those in uh, overseas. Um, but the, 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 uh, the, the point is, is that it, it, it is very much a sort of, uh, a, sort of a, a light agreement. It wouldn't have all the terms in that we've just discussed and 
uh, all of the different mechanisms, but probably still subject to an NDA, of course. So um, as I say, the chances of it actually being openly discussed um, in, in the media pen is going to be a lot less as a result. Can an option then sometimes function as a way for a team that's sending a driver somewhere, let's say in the case of Albon, if I'm sending Albon there and I, he signs, it's just like a right of first refusal. You, you At the end of this year, we have the right to re-sign you to our team if we insist. Does that then become a way of extracting extra value from that driver? Say Williams really want to keep him. Red Bull's like, well, okay, but now we're going to need some, we're going to, we're going to need a little bit of scratch here if we're, we're not going to re-sign him. Um, yes. I mean, you could potentially use it in that way, but um, it, it, it's the fact as well that they're notoriously difficult things to then necessarily rely on. If, if we're saying that even a contract can't necessarily be regarded as being ironclad, then an option definitely isn't. You know, you can't then turn around and say, oh, I've got an option, and they say, well, tough, we've already signed two other drivers. It's it's just a, almost really the equivalent of a, a sort of gentle statement of intent, um, a, a prelude, um, but without going into the um, the, the more detailed um, agreement that a contract would constitute. Um, but it also, as I say, it's, it's the fact that the issues around Red Bull and their driver program are so... Um, you've got a sort of greater amount of politics around that as a whole in terms of how they... Uh, manage their drivers, how they bring them up from the lower formula, how they end up dispensing with them. I mean, if we want to go through the list of Red Bull drivers over the years who've, you know, they've had wonderful contracts with Red Bull and um, look what happened to Daniel Kvyat. You know, it's <laughs> they aren't necessarily the most reliable of of documents. So um, in this instance, as I, I think it's more of a, uh, a negotiating ploy and almost a way of trying to destabilize Mercedes by saying, look, look, he's still our driver, when in reality he may not be. Okay, so whilst we're on the, the subject of, of options then, and you said you were screaming at the TV at one point <laughs> when we were talking about Lewis Hamilton's contract. So the way I saw it, and obviously I clearly don't understand the legal definitions, I know about when you scream objection, I know you occasionally have to call the witness a badger, I know all of those legal terms, so you don't need to tell me about those. But what I thought that you basically have a, a two-year contract that Lewis Hamilton had, but I guess there's like a a get out clause after like one year or something. And like, if they both agree, then, you know, they carry on. So the option to me, it was kind of like, well, the default will be two years, but if something happens, like you can, I guess, leave after one year, but you seem to talk about it more in terms of, no, it was a one year contract. And then they negotiate again for the second part. So a, what's the point of it being called an option? Just make it a one year contract. I thought the option part of it just takes away all that elongated, negotiation they just have to decide yes or no instead of like re-talking about money yeah. so the one year op- i think in that context and this was the discussion of course with lewis hamilton's one year deal which i don't think anyone um a year ago envisaged but covid um brought to pass and that was a one-year contract for this year only with a one-year option for the following year and i think that was very much mercedes way of making that public by saying it's only for a year but if anyone has the slightest hint that they can poach and destabilize lewis don't think so because we also have another option for the following year i.e this then allows us to actually get some time when all of our key staff and decision makers have recovered from um, uh, from COVID, and we can actually get a proper long-term driver contract in place 
to more than likely see out Lewis for the balance of his career. That's funny because I, I looked at that particular announcement as being, uh, oh, I might not win my eighth championship this year, so maybe I just better <laughs> you know, leave an iron in the fire just <laughs> in case. Uh, before we uh, let you go, I think something that people are very curious about now that George Russell has been officially signed with Mercedes is how how does it work with equal treatment? Number one, number two driver status. Can you Can you order a driver to chill out a bit in the fight? I mean, there's loads of language from Mercedes saying, uh, let's have George Russell continue his learning at Mercedes. Continue his learning doesn't scream, we're going to give you equal opportunities to go and fight Lewis Hamilton. It's kind of saying, serve your apprentice, apprentice kind of period, get the bruise in, do your best, and when Lewis retires, you're out of here. But, but I mean, what, what can you do in a contract? So there'll be things in there that um, aim to probably give him equal status in terms of equipment. Uh, and in fairness, Mercedes are generally pretty good at this. They, they tend not to turn up at the track and say, oh, well, we've got this new front wing, and we've got, you know, Lewis has got that this weekend, but, but you know, his teammate hasn't. They're pretty scrupulous and pretty efficient in terms of saying each car has the same equipment and we aren't prioritizing one driver's equipment over another. Whereas we know that sometimes Red Bull in their stampede to try and improve the car have turned up with um, parts solely for the um, for the lead Red Bull driver. Um, and that has happened with other teams as well. They've just said, look, this is just the way we work. We've prioritized one of the one of the drivers. Um that, I mean, in terms of then the sort of equal treatment and team orders, it, it's difficult to then have an awful lot in the contract about that, apart from, and there's probably actually clauses in both the lead, you know, both drivers, it will say, you agree to follow the instructions of the team. And that would come to the instance of, please let through your teammate who's on quicker tyres or a different strategy. But it would also mean, you know, you, you agree to act in the best interests of the team. You're both representing the team on the track. And there may be scenarios where in order to guarantee a good result for the team, another driver's prospects have to be burned. And we see that quite often. And I thought it was very interesting at the Hungarian Grand Prix, of course, that video message from George offering to sacrifice his race so that Nicolas Latifi could potentially score the team's first points of the year. Interesting he said that, and then interesting that Formula One chose to broadcast it as well out of all the thousands of messages over the course of that race. But um, I, I thought that was quite um, appropriate, given probably the nature of the discussions he ha will have had with Mercedes in terms of, you know, they will probably have actually asked him, you know, will you just follow the, the instructions that come through? And we've heard over the last six, seven years, lots of radio messages from Mercedes, lots of messages when it was Nico and Valtteri sometimes not happy with what the team was asking them. And they'll want to make sure that if necessary, um, George is willing to follow the same instructions. So just want to, I just want to, again, like with Bottas, just put a little bit of a sprinkle of a caveat on that, which is George Russell is a PR machine. He knows the right things to say. He, he likes to come across as you know, whiter than white, uh, noble, gallant, in the same way that Lewis Hamilton likes to cultivate that kind of, that drama. He's like, Lewis, you won by four laps. How was it? Oh, man, but my leg was falling off. And then there was like wind in my face and my eyeball disappeared for a moment. So that that's a character trait, I think, of George Russell, Matt, is that he definitely has a very polished, he's always aware of his PR. It's not heart on sleeve at all with him. It is a, a manicured what is going out to the world. That's all. That's all I want to add to that. 
Well, I'd just say, actually, I'm not sure it's necessarily sort of PR. I think it's the fact that he's been incredibly well prepared as a Formula One driver. Um, you know, he's come through that racing pyramid of different series in the UK, same as Lando, same as uh, as Lewis and a lot of the other drivers. But, you know, when you saw that picture of him as a fan looking for Lewis's autograph in, what was it, 2008, 2009, and looking on in awe as Lewis walks past, you, you get you see that the guy not only, you know, likes being a racer, he's also a fan. So he knows the game. He can play the game. He's and playing that's the game. He's doing. He is playing the game. Trumpets. Yeah, well, I just want to say that's one of the things to me that made the whole Imola collision with Botas thing so very, very interesting is I feel like we saw a side of Russell that he very rarely lets go of. That's the side he doesn't want you to see, Matt, but we saw a little bit, and I think we'll see a bit more at Mercedes. And and speaking of Mercedes, I just want to ask, given how many times it's occurred, for so many different teams, and and I know even more than we usually even know about from from chatting with Summers, I can't imagine there's not just a basic clause in every driver's contract that says in the event we cannot bring some same parts for both cars, we reserve the right to allocate those parts based on you know championship point order at that time, which is basically them telling Russell, yeah, Hamilton will get the good parts if we can only turn up with one set of them. Yeah, and I think that is that is sort of detailed in the, the answer Peter gave us before. Uh, really interesting stuff. I really appreciate you uh, coming on. There was no talk of a, a fee, thank goodness, because uh, I, can, I can tell by your status in the world that I would not be able to afford this conversation. But people can hire you. You're like the A-team, can't they? Uh, if you go to, uh, is it still Digital Law UK? It's Digital Law we did have a slight rebrand, but Ooh. yes, we. Um, if you go to at Digital Law UK, that's my Twitter handle, um, and that's my firm, Digital Law. We do a lot of advice around e-commerce and doing things digitally and helping people sell products and services into new markets. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, when it comes to e-commerce, apps, websites, all that sort of stuff, we do lots of stuff around that. So, uh, so that's us, and I, I do a lot of talk about technology and innovation um, as well. So if you're into any of that, Give us a follow on Twitter. Go give him a, a follow. None of this was legal advice, except the bit where he said that I definitely wouldn't get sued uh, by Ferrari for suggesting they allegedly cheated a while back. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Come and join us as soon again and enjoy the rest of the season. And that's all we've got for you this week. Thank you very much to Peter Wright and Magnus Greaves and, of course, to Matt Trumpets to, for keeping me company during those interviews. Everything we talk about is always in the show notes below. So underneath the video, if you're on YouTube, or I think you'd like scroll right on Pocket Cast or scroll up on Apple Podcasts. If you're a an audio listener, come check out the video. Come see what we look at, uh, what we look like, and the good work we do here with the video. And check out what Uncle Steve uh, presents to the world as the face of Mr. Apex. And if you're a video person, why not subscribe to the uh, podcast version as well? So it's there if you ever need our company whilst driving or mowing the lawn or something. If you like the work we're doing here at Mist Apex Podcast and, and you want to be part of the, the army of patrons that help keep this on the road and keep us driving forward and are giving us great ambition for things to do in 2022, then we would appreciate you considering supporting us at patreon.com forward slash Mist Apex. It's a small monthly payment. There's various tiers of uh, quote-unquote rewards. Some of those rewards are extra shows that are worse, <laughs> but we also have a nice Slack forum. You can have an ad-free audio feed as well. Patreon.com forward slash Mistapex. Link in the show notes below. We will see you, I think, next for the Russian Grand Prix race review, 8 p.m. 
UK time, live on YouTube. Our patrons get to chat along live in our patron Slack group as well. Hope to see you there. Until next time, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.